0: I'm your hostess dr gracie christie thank you for joining us again this week on conversations with consequences we have a fun show for you today joining us next is father ben keely he is the founder and the ceo of Nazarene.org, which is an organization that advocates for persecuted christians around the world but more specifically about for the christians in the middle east who very much uh, under attack and persecution He will tell us all about Nazarene.org, and we've asked him to come talk to us today because it's the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the Iraq War. But first, with uh, so many ideologies leaking into education, both public and private, and you know here on Conversations, we keep a very attentive eye on education. Um, We chat with Mark Brumley, who's the CEO and president of Ignatius Press, about a program that he's going to tell us about that is working wonders within Catholic schools. It's called Word of Life. It's a catechetical program, and we can't wait to hear about it. This past week, the National Review uh, magazine uh, published online an article that I wrote, an op-ed that I wrote about, again, my father. I've written so much about his death and all the all the things that came with it. Many of them blessings. Of course, whenever we are challenged by difficult things, the graces are also abundant and we experience uh, so much of God's love in the midst of our suffering. And that that's been so, so high in my mind, so uppermost in my mind with um, my father's long and slow death of ALS. and then and then this time after his death, Uh, that has been another time of growth and uh, great spiritual growth for all of us that loved him. Uh, Very impactful. So National Review published a piece that I wrote. I wanted to read it to you and hope you enjoy it. You can also read it online on National Review, of course. When someone you love is dying slow and hard of a disease like ALS, you find lots of things to be thankful for the closeness of family and friends, the gentle respiratory technician who takes panicked phone calls at any hour of the night, all the devices that smart people have invented to make the life of a quadriplegic more bearable. In fact, during the last few months of my father's life, my family became quite expert at counting our blessings. One of those blessings is that our home state of Florida is not an assisted suicide state. Thank God that kind of thing isn't legal here, my mother said on more than one occasion. I would hate for your father to think he should end his life to save us from trouble and pain." With this, she put her finger on one of the great flaws in the argument to legalize assisted suicide. Its eager champions promoted it as a free choice, a way for dying patients to exercise self-determination. The truth, as we all came to realize while caring for my father, is quite the opposite. While he was extraordinarily brave when it came to confronting his own suffering, he agonized over the toll his care was taking on us, and especially my mother. As this disease advanced, caring for him became more and more exhausting, expensive, and complex. This and the pain of watching the steady advance of his paralysis was fearfully hard on us. For patients like my father, the pressure to relieve family members of all this is overwhelming. They worry more about their loved ones than about themselves. In Oregon, where assisted suicide has been legal longest in the United States, the cases where patients reported feeling like a burden as their primary cause for suicide was tabulated to be as high as 45 percent. My father was fortunate he had a large and close-knit family to help and accompany him and we had the means to hire home health aides when he eventually needed round-the-clock support but too many disabled and terminally ill patients are what's called attendant deficient. Promoting assisted suicide will no doubt only increase the pressure these patients feel to choose suicide simply because the needed social assistance and healthcare options are unavailable. In fact, the more assisted suicide spreads, and seven states are considering legalizing it at this time, the more society is disincentivized to provide these costly but needed services. The easy and inexpensive default is to help the patient end his or her life as a relief to society and the patient's family. Just last month, disability rights advocates filed a lawsuit alleging that California's End of Life Options Act has created a discriminatory system in which people with disabilities are steered toward suicide and away from the help and accommodations that they need. I don't doubt that they have many examples of people being pushed toward suicide since California enacted that law. My father was diagnosed with ALS in January of 2019. At that time, doctors told him that he had, at most, six months to live. You can imagine the shock of this news to a man who was hale and hearty, the patriarch, in the best and most loving sense, of an affectionate family. The doctors were, as is so often the case, wrong. He lived almost another three years, defying expectations. This is not uncommon, and it's another example of the fallacies in the arguments for assisted suicide, which treat terminal prognoses as gospel. If my father had acted, given his prognosis to end his life in order to prevent his family's suffering, as so many do in our nation's assisted suicide states, he would have missed many joys and milestones. As his disease progressed, every expression of loving attention, however small, every kiss or caress, made him inordinately happy. Toward the end, he cried from gladness much more often than from fear or pain. My father has been gone five months now. Looking back, I continue to be thankful for his last years. In that time, in our family's years of ALS, he gave us a tremendous example of courage and nobility in the face of overwhelming adversity. He brought out the very best in us. We all gave and gave of ourselves, finding reserves and abilities we didn't know we had. Our hearts grew larger caring for him, and I don't think that they will shrink again. Yes, I'm grateful that my father was never offered the choice to do away with himself, and that he was spared the awful pressure to save us from a time that, as it turns out, we will cherish in our memories all our lives. So that's the end of my article. Not the end of all my thoughts about assisted suicide, which I thought that I understood really well why it was such a pernicious and evil thing. And there's so many good reasons that I'm sure all of you have in in your hand, and you can grasp them in your hands. Um, But living with my father through those years of ALS really brought this to mind, how thankful we should be when we are suffering, when someone we love is suffering. And suicide is not an option because suicide is, is a terrible negation of of that that wonderful desire that God has for us that we have that we have life and we have it to the fullest and to to turn away from that is to turn away from many many blessings and and joys even i found out through the death of my father in in in, in extremely difficult circumstances even there there is joy there is peace. There is God, and there is so much love, so much love in those in those times. So let's all of us uh, pay attention to those assisted suicide laws when they come up in our states, and and fight them, fight them with our with all our energies and all our hearts, because we will be not only saving lives from being ended in the terrible way that suicide ends lives so unjustly so so wrongly but also we will be saving for sick and dying people we will be saving for them those blessings that come at the at the end of, of life when life ends naturally welcome to the show mark
1: hey, well glad to be with you
0: Mark, here on, on our radio show Conversations with Consequences, we talk a lot about education. Um, there's probably very little that's as important as education, right? I mean you build a culture and then you either transmit it or you or the culture dies. And that's where the transmission happens in education. And you have a one a new catechetical program called Word of Life. And I understand it's a joint project between Ignatius Press and the augustine institute
1: what, right what yes. is
0: new tell us about your project what's new about it and what do you hope to do with it
1: well what what's new about it, it you know it's a program for schools and parishes and homeschool. so uh catholic schools obviously they're supposed to be in the business of, or the ministry of more than a business of faith formation for their students and obviously catholic Parishes do that as well, and so what the Word of Life series is is a new catechetical series to help them form young people in the faith. What's different about it, it's, it's a very integrated program where we utilize, um, obviously, traditional textbooks— but also, and we have a you know, traditional classroom version and a parish catechetical version and all of that. Uh, but we also include digital assets, so an online component. We are closely bound up with the idea of faith formation involving the parents, so we're trying to evangelize the parents. And it's really a, what what's called an evangelizing catechesis. It doesn't assume that children simply need to know the faith. Of course, they do need to know what we believe as Catholics, but they also need to be evangelized, which involves a personal conversion, personal choice, so that the faith that the kids are learning about is actually their own, and they actually have a personal relationship with Christ. It's not just something that somebody is teaching them about, but it's actually an encounter with the Lord and they come to know the Lord through the cateche- know the Lord better through the catechetical process. And so we bring together four what we call golden threads or key elements, which is salvation history, which is the Bible history. We want to make sure that young people know their story. The Bible story of salvation history is really our story, it's how God has sought us out and won us back and, and so on. The second component is what we call Christian anthropology, which is a fancy way of saying, uh, understanding who we are made by God to be. And so that means beings of body and soul, not just a material dimension, but a spiritual dimension. Dimension, not a disembodied spiritual dimension, but a real life in the flesh dimension. And that includes understanding what it means to be male and female. There's a lot of confusion about that today. What God has revealed to us in Jesus Christ, in scripture, in tradition, the teaching of the church informs. Our sense of who we are as human beings and called to a destiny of of being uh, in communion with God. Then the third element is what we call heroic virtue and character formation, which has to do with development development of the character the characteristics of a, hero, a heroic virtue. And virtue here is uh, you know a kind of a, a semi permanent quality to our lives uh, comes by doing good things, making right choices repeatedly, and avoiding wrong choices. Not just simply on the human level, but on the level of divine grace. So there's a lot of focus on the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, and all that's involved with that. And then the fourth point: all of this is to learn, just learn, you know, learn to be followers of Jesus, as a matter of discipleship. So we're not just raising kids to hear Catholic doctrine taught, as important as that is, or even have a personal encounter with Christ. That's obviously crucial. But, also, to be disciples, followers of Jesus, and take seriously the call to be followers of Jesus. We're really trying to raise up the next generation of Catholics and and make sure that they are their Catholic identity is solidly formed and rests on on this relationship with Christ as part of the church, and being a disciple of Jesus. So I said a lot there at the outset, but that's that's my initial response to your question.
2: This is Ashley. And, um, you know, I have three of my four kids are in parochial schools, and one of them just uh, finished his year of religious education before receiving his first communion my husband this weekend said, Hey, Max, what are the seven deadly sins? And my son said, what's that? (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, and this is a pretty solid parochial school um, where at least, you know, we don't feel like they're being taught stuff that's antithetical to the faith, which is unfortunately the case in a lot of, a lot of Catholic schools, but they, you know, all three of them are going to new Catholic schools next year. And I was excited to see, I can't remember which one of them, they're going to be using your program and, Um, you know, all I needed to see was the Ignatius Press stamp on there to know that it was going to be definitely a a step above, you know, what they had um, been using before. Um, So just so incredibly important and so needed. Um, And one thing, you know, that I think is, is interesting, again, being a parent, having been a parent in parochial schools for, for many years now is that it's not just the kids who need this. It's it's probably the parents, too, because, you know, yeah. less and less at mass. We're, you know, we're not we're not even getting basic catechesis there. And for many, you know, adults of my generation and then 40s, 50s, you know, they're they're half a century away from when they were first taught these right. things. Um, and I, I saw that in some of the press that your program received, uh, that one of your partners in in launching this program said that, that this approach not just forms students in and out of the classroom but also provides formation and content to teachers and parents can you can you speak a little bit to that, and why why it is that you chose to make this something that isn't just for the kids?
1: Uh, happy to do that, Ashley. Sorry to hear about your negative experience with with the Catholic school, uh, and that's precisely the kind of things we hear all the time, which is one of the reasons why we're doing this program. Our approach is integrated uh, in in several ways. First, there's an integration of faith formation. So, I mean, students. And teachers and the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is the one who catechizes and forms young people in the faith. So there's that integration. But then there's also the integration of the student with the family. So we we want to do faith formation that certainly is aimed at students, but we understand that the most fruitful way in which someone comes to faith and grows in faith is when that's reinforced in the family. And a lot of you know most. Parents send their kids to Catholic school, they have good intentions, um, but they themselves oftentimes need to undergo conversion, uh, at the very least the ongoing conversion of deepening faith, and they don't often know how to do that, you know, and so one of the ways we've constructed the uh, Word of Life series is to utilize online video resources so that when parents— Uh, help their kids with their religion you know they themselves get evangelized through these great videos that we have Um, we also you know because we're working with the augustine institute ignatius press and augustine institute are both partners on the digital platform formed so we're trying to use those resources to help evangelize parents as well so it really is um we have to look i was thinking about this the other day When we started Word of Life, we were talking about how, in many ways, we need to rebuild catechesis or rethink catechesis from the ground up. It's not just simply—it used to be, especially back in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, that we needed to teach good, solid Catholic doctrine. Of course, we need to do that. And and the example you gave of your child not knowing the seven deadly sins indicates that. So we've got to teach solid Catholic doctrine, King water it down we have to teach the faith but we also have to do it in an engaging way which makes it personal and it's not just something that you know filling the head uh, but it's also transforming the heart and it's not just isolated the individual student or even even a class of students but it's got to touch on the family it's got to bring in the family So I know a lot of schools and especially a lot of parishes are really looking for this way. How do we reach the parents? They know the parents are crucial in this. And so that's one of the things we've done with Word of Life with our digital platform and our video resources to have resources available to help reach the parents, help form the parents and reinforce the the ongoing evangelization of the children by making sure that their parents are evangelized.
0: I. This is Gracie Mark. I'm. I'm also a, a long-standing parochial parent. Although up until last year, I had. I was a mother at our local parochial school for like 23 years <laughs> because my children have a lot of children and they're sort of all spread apart. And I really got to know parochial education very well. And um, one thing that. That is missing very often in my experience in 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 good parochial schools. Where, for instance, in our school, there's wonderful nuns that have this, a beautiful. Uh, they have a wonderful way of of, of teaching Jesus as a friend and someone that you want mm-hmm. to follow and who who you learn to love. Mm-hmm. And that's your that's your fourth great. golden thread, right? Of G, uh, learning to follow right. Jesus as disciples. So they're really good at that. Right. They they don't touch Christian anthropology, <laughs> because. Yeah. Um, it's such a complex issue right now. and and I feel right. that we are losing literally losing children, right? I mean, with the the terrible yeah. rates of depression and suicide amongst young people. Um, but we we're losing souls too, because um, children just aren't taught to understand themselves. Um, so tell right. tell us more about your Christian anthropology section.
1: Well, obviously, it's rooted in in the story of creation and the story of redemption. You know, God made us. Male and female for each other, and and build family from that. Uh, but also redemption. You know, and we we you know we, we weave this thread throughout the presentation. Even if something like presenting the sacraments, we think of Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as the bride, and the priest, you know, representing Christ as bridegroom to the church. His maleness, his male identity, uh, is important. It's it's a message bearing. Uh, graced reality. And so we help the young people understand that God made them to be, you know, boys and girls and men and women when they grow up. And that this identity that they have is that, you know, boys are meant to be fathers, girls are meant to, to be mothers. And sometimes that's literally true in family life uh, when we're called to marriage. So we talk about the sacrament of matrimony and God's called to bring us fully into being what he wants us to be through that uh, vocation. But also God calls uh, some of us to priestly ministry and some of us to religious life. And there the fundamental identity of male and female continues because priests are called to be spiritual fathers and uh, women religious are called to be spiritual mothers. And so we want to make sure that our kids understand these identities are rooted in in who we are as created beings it's not something we adopt the idea that you know that you're being a man or a woman or a male or female uh, is associated with gender and that gender is this thing that we create and it's completely fluid you know that's really the source of a lot of the confusion we have in our society right now and so we want to combat that not in a in a way that is um, it's not like we're gonna you know we're launching a culture war or something like that but by teaching young people very early on what it means to be male, what it means to be female, that this is part of God's purpose for life and family life. And that oftentimes, as in so many areas of life, um, you know, people experience confusion. And just as we experience confusion with our gift as being, made in the image of God, so many dimensions of life. So this is another area of life where, we really need to look at the teaching example of Jesus to free our minds and to help our hearts to be able to see what God has in store for us. And that this is really the route to happiness and fulfillment, and to not let these other things in, in our society, which are the source of so much confusion, uh, set us along the wrong path. So we try to do that through starting from K through. Uh, all eight grades, we're, we're presently working on six, seven, and eight now, in ways that are grade appropriate, that are positive and engaging, so kids have things to build on over time, and that they come to see these things as, as being part of the gift that God has for them and, and expressions of God's love, not you know so much expressions of rules or things of that sort, but the way that God wants people to be fulfilled in life. And that you know, um, we live in a time when we see people in our society not following Jesus and and, and setting a counterexample. Uh, but uh, we need to be good disciples of Jesus and follow Him, and, and in that we're going to find fulfillment and happiness.
0: Well, those are fabulous words to end on. They sort of clinch everything, <laughs> right for for this for this talk and for our our entire lives. <laughs> so, Mark. Um, your program is called Words, Word of Life, and where That's can uh, our listeners he- uh, learn more about it? So maybe they can bring it to their to their parish priest and say, We need something like this in our parish and in our ProCo school.
1: Folks who want to go online can go to wordoflifeseries.org, O R G, wordoflifeseries.org, or you can go to Ignatius Press's website. It's called Ignatius, N G, excuse me, I G N A T I U S, Ignatius.com, and search for Word of Life. And people want to find out how they can support us and help us, can go to the Ignatius Press website.
0: Well, thank you, Mark.
1: Thank you, and, and God bless your work.
0: The month of May is almost finished. We are um, amazingly halfway through the year, practically going into June, into summer vacation, if you if you have children. Or you're a teacher and you get summer vacation, how nice. Uh, lots of time to rest and, and recharge our batteries um, over summer. Um, although, of course, many of us, like me, summer, winter, fall, and spring is about the same uh, as far as work goes. Not complaining. Although it's been very busy lately, There's uh, Florida is just... I live in Florida, as, as my listeners know, and uh, Florida is just jumping up in population our population is just going through the roof people love florida Uh, lots of good things are happening in florida people feel good in florida and it's not just the weather so i'm I'm glad about that but we it keeps us very busy especially in the medical field we have lots of patients all the time and it's hard to keep up this month of may is the month of our lady and there's still time if you're listening to this uh on the radio at the end of May the last couple days of May there's still time to do a pilgrimage uh, which is a very pretty custom uh, for May in our family we we do something called a romeria Uh, I'm not even sure where that word comes from but it's a, a special pilgrimage that that you share with other families or friends and you do it with with special intentionality you say okay who can I go on this pilgrimage with this year Uh, on this month of May, who do I know who needs this? What special intention uh, can my friends and I pray for or this other family and ours pray for? And then you find a shrine near you or some some special place where you, a shrine or a special church where there's a beautiful image of Our Lady, and you go together on a pilgrimage. You can walk, you can ride your car, you can ride a bike, whatever whatever um, works, depending on where you are and where, you're, where your uh, pilgrimage destination is. So on the way there, you say a rosary. When you're there, you say a rosary. And on your way back, you say a rosary. We've been doing it every year for some time. And I think the intentionality of using it as an, an apostolic event where you are going to really think of other people and how you can bring them to our lady is a very beautiful thing. I know that in our family we've we've really enjoyed doing this. We've we've sometimes we've sometimes brought f- family friends that are going through a very difficult time in in one way or another and it's been so fabulous to go on the, on a pilgrimage which in a way it recapitulates our entire our entire existence, right? We we are Hopefully, on our way to God, suffering yes, on the way, but always accompanied and always with our eyes firmly set uh, on our hope, on our our eternal future, with our Lord. When we 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 make this we make this lively this lifelong pilgrimage, and and come home to Him. So again. Just a few days left in May, but a wonderful time to make a pilgrimage to Our Lady and bring someone who, or another family that you know uh, needs to walk this path. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Joining us next is Father Ben Keeley. He is the founder and the CEO of Nazarene.org. Welcome to the show, Father Ben.
3: Thank you very much again, Gracie, for having me.
0: No, it's it's our pleasure. We we admire here at Conversations. We admire the work that you do in in um, in advocating for the persecuted Christians all over the world, but especially in the Middle East, which is your specialty. You are uh, in and out of the Middle East all the time. Um, I'm always a little worried when you're traveling in those in those places, which to me um, seem very very dangerous, and and I'm sure they are. <laughs> But you, but you go and and you have these great projects that we I, I want I want you to remind our readers of, about uh, our listeners I'm sorry about Nazarene.org, but let's um, I wanted to get your thoughts first about the significance for us especially as as Catholics as Christians of the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War, which began in 2003, soon after the September 11 attacks uh, on our soil, those terrible attacks that sort of Put the world in, <laughs> in a, in a, on a terrible spin, right, and led to the Iraq War, to the invasion that went on until 2011, uh, which is shockingly long. Uh, I, I had forgotten how long that that war uh, lasted. But the trouble hasn't stopped since 2011. A lot of stuff that started with the invasion, as as in ways that har- have terribly harmed our Christian brothers and sisters in the area, continue unabated. In, in many ways, so tell us tell us your thoughts on the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War.
3: Well, it's a very significant anniversary. It's sort of crept up in a way. Uh, a date that we remember particularly is May the 23rd of 2003, when. Paul Bremer, the administrator, decided to disband the Iraqi army. And so there was already chaos, but the chaos just got worse and worse. And I think perhaps many of the listeners tend to focus on what happened after 2014 with ISIS. But really, for the Christian population, for all Iraqis, but for the Christian population, as well. The terror really began in 2003. All the inter nisan rivalries between Shia, and Sunni and Christians began. Christians started to be murdered. We think of some of the great martyrs, Father Ragid Ghani and Bishop Raho from Mosul. They were all killed long before ISIS existed. So we go back 20 years. It's hard, I think, for some, a lot of us to remember what we were doing or thinking, but there was a great war sort of move and an understandable desire to, to, to punish people we thought had had something to do with September the 11th. Of course, we've discovered now that really Iraq in particular had nothing to do with it, Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with it. As we remember, the, the hijackers were nearly all Saudis. and We seem to be just doing fine with the Saudis. We, we trade away with them, no problem. But for the Christians, there's this towering figure Catholics and Christians, there's the towering figure of John Paul II, St. John Paul II, who was a prophet. I mean, he warned spectacularly and powerfully, he warned that if this happened, he said the Christian community, the Christian church in Iraq would be destroyed. And sadly, it's terribly sad that he was 100% right. The Christian community has not been destroyed, but it's been decimated. I mean, we've gone down from more than 1.3 million Christians, this ancient church founded by the apostles of, of Jesus, this ancient church has gone down from 1.3 million to less than 200,000. It's an anniversary of real sadness and uh, should cause a lot of reflection.
0: And this, a lot of these, these losses have been loss of life, uh, people fleeing the region. One thing that I've learned from being f- friendly with you and having uh, our wonderful conversations on the air over the years, Father, has been the, the absolute importance of Christianity in the Middle East, which the Middle East is the cradle of Christianity. That's where Christianity came to life. That's where our Lord walked. And and as you say, the the very apostles of Jesus founded Christianity in in the lands that are now Iraq and Syria. And we tend to think of those areas as Muslim. But Islam began in the year 600-something, many hundreds of years after that whole land was Christian. So... This is something that I learned uh, from you, and and from uh, you know, deepening my understanding of the subject over the years because I've been paying attention to the persecuted Christians. So this is uh, it, it's something that we can't brush off as as Catholics as Christians well, that that Christianity we simply can't allow Christianity to be exterminated in, in its in its cradle lands.
3: It's our roots. You you can't cut the. the the roots away from the tree because then that will kill the tree but it certainly damages the tree and it it is the one of the funny things i may have said this to you before on a previous program gracie that uh, arab christians laugh because so often americans or english people say to arab christians "Oh." Arab Christians, we didn't know you. When did we bring you the gospel? And they laughed. <laughs> yes. It's the other way around, you know. And these are, it is the cradle of Christianity. They are ancient roots, ancient roots. And we can't let them disappear. We, we must do everything we can to help them. They will become, though, unfortunately, like in Iraq, they they are a, a real minority. I was just in Iraq again in, in January. And the Iraqi bishops are working on a... Uh, final figure, it's so an estimation that there will be, in the end, around 50,000 Christians left in Iraq. So think about that. In 20 years, from 1.3 million, 1.4 million, to 50,000. That is an extraordinarily horrifying figure, but they'll still be there. I think the ones who will be there now, that's one of the signs of hope. I mean, yes, a lot of people were killed over those years. Many, many, most have fled. Most just felt they had no future in the country and have fled, have gone to other countries, Particularly places like Australia, Canada. Obviously, there are some in the U in the United States and in Britain. Not not that many Christians, unfortunately, were let in. Certainly, under the last two administrations. But we must care about the ones now very much who are there and give them as much support as we can, because we we would lose something essential if if Christianity just disappeared from from the land of the Lord's, from the area of the Lord's birth. They well, they give us so much.
0: Well, let me ask you, you said that Pope uh, St. John Paul II um, predicted that this would happen, that if Iraq was invaded and wars took place, that the Christian population would be decimated. W- why exactly? What are well, the forces re- that have destroyed this population?
3: He realized it would unleash the... Into you know the, the the warfare between the different groups, uh, and this is hard also for many people in the West to understand because they think about dictators, they think about Saddam Hussein, Bashar al-Assad now in in Syria, that the the people were under living under very difficult regimes. But I'll give you a perfect anecdote. One of my friends, a priest, who was actually kidnapped by Shia militia long before, again long before uh, ISIS. This was post-2003, in that period of chaos, I, I said to him, why, he was kidnapped for more than a week. He was tortured by the Shia. They um, broke his vertebrae and his back with a hammer. They broke his teeth. And I talked about the situation then and now. And he said to me, very simply, he said, there's bad and there's worse. Hmm. Which would you rather live under? And I said, well, bad, obviously. He said, That's the point. Before, with Saddam, it was bad. He was a dictator. But people lived in peace. There weren't kidnappings and murders. Then after 2003, this, this force was unleashed of kidnappings and murders and no one had no one had securities, not just the Christians. But the Christians are always the group that people pick on. So John Paul saw with his with his wisdom and with his vision, he saw that this would happen. He somehow miraculously or through some spiritual gift, he he saw that that tender community, that fragile community, it would be split apart. And and people didn't listen to his warning, sadly. Many, many Catholics didn't listen. And sadly, the other thing is, at least 20 years later, some people who maybe supported it can say, with a little bit of humility, we were wrong. But it's it's strange to see there are still some people saying it was the right thing to do and, and not apologizing. I mean, if I'd been all for the war. I would hope by now I could say, I made a mistake, I I should say sorry. And I would think Iraqi Christians would hope that we would say sorry for that. It doesn't mean, as I said, it doesn't mean that uh, someone like Saddam Hussein was, was a good person. No one can argue that. But for better or for worse, where there's a strong leader and a dictator, you can call them dictators, like Assad in Syria, people, the communities are in peace somehow. And that all gets destroyed when, when this sort of thing happens.
0: Well, you've, kept, you've told us about the decimation in numbers of the Christian peoples of, of the area. But tell us what their life is like right now in a, in a practical sense. What's it like to, to be a Christian in Iraq in 2023?
3: Well, in Erbil, which is the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan, which is where all the Christians fled to when when ISIS started in 2014 from the Nineveh Plain. In Erbil, it's very, very safe. Uh, If you can find a job, things are, I mean, everything is very, very expensive, which is all over the world, but it's particularly expensive there. Out on the Nineveh Plain, where a number of Christians have returned to, it's hard. There's no active persecution in the sense of murder, but they are what the Archbishop of Erbil has described as a silent persecution. Now it's not so much ISIS, although they're reviving. The Shia militias who have who are supported by Iran and funded by Iran are surrounding Christian towns and, and villages and pushing them, them out by demographic means, trying to stop them having property, buying properties, trying to stop them having businesses, uh, an atmosphere of, I mean, again, funnily enough, just this January, I was, as I said, was in Iraq. We were driving into a town where our charity helps a number of the businesses, a great priest there, Father Banoka his father Benham Benocca, he's another Father Ben, we call him another Father Ben, great priest. And we drive into the town, it was a Christian town before ISIS. Now it's surrounded by images, billboards of Iranian mullahs, ayatollahs. And um, I said to Father uh, Banaka, I said, Father, it feels a bit like being in an occupied country. And he said, exactly. So it feels like Iran is occupying Iraq. and And to a certain extent, that's the case. So the Christians are, COVID stopped them fleeing because they couldn't leave for Three years, but Archbishop Warder of their bill told me he thinks now that there's a certain stability. The numbers will stabilise, but it's critical that they have jobs, which is why my charity focuses on that so much. Because at least if you have a job, if you if you can start your own business or have a job, there's some security. We can't do anything about the physical security situation, but if you have a job, you've got your dignity and you have a future. Th- there's a hope. We we have to try and always be positive. If if they all disappeared then we're talking about uh, that's another story but i think the ones there now who are looking at a future they're like us they want to have a family they want to have children they want to um, be in peace they want to be successful Um, and so it's part of our duty as christians in the west to help our brethren do that
0: what i like about your charity and let me spell it for our listeners it's nazarean n-a-s-a-r-e-a-n dot org Uh, what i like about it is that it has a, a philosophy, small is beautiful. And, and it works by giving a small grants uh, or gifts of of three to five thousand dollars, and correct me if I'm wrong, to help people rebuild their lives by starting a business. That brings in all sorts of good things when you when you work this way. It gives you the dignity of work, of entrepreneurship, of uh, responsibility. Um, all those, all those wonderful virtues. Uh, I mean, a handout is wonderful when you need, when you're protecting someone from starvation and absolute want. But a thousand times better than that is uh, putting, helping someone get on their feet and, and um, with their own hands, you know, produce what their, what their family needs.
3: I think I'm going to have to hire you, Gracie, as my PR lady because you just sold that. Uh, you sold it very well. No, it's all true. It's, it's very small. Uh, and it's true, I say small is beautiful, because, but I think uh, Americans in particular understand uh, the idea of a family business. I mean, most Americans are either running their own business, they're the children of people who ran the business, or they're the grandchildren. And the idea of a family business, small amount, yeah, 3,000, 5,000, maybe up to 10,000. It's not really that much when you think of a startup, but they we, you can follow it because we're very small. You don't give hundreds of thousands of dollars to be lost in all the administration. So you can follow. You can look at their stories, listen to their, see their faces, hear their names. Two beautiful. I'll give you two beautiful examples, which which really struck me this this last trip in, in, in Iraq. We uh, gave some money, I think about five thousand dollars. to a a farmer in Karakosh. Karakosh was the largest and is still the largest Christian city in in Nineveh, and the Nineveh Plain. And they've had a terrible drought for the last three years in in Iraq. So everything is brown, 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 brown. And we gave some money to this farmer, Wasim, with his young wife and his child. I think he's got two children, maybe, um, to dig a well. And it's amazing. It's so beautiful. It's so symbolic because you drive to his farm and it's brown, brown fields, brown fields. And then suddenly you see green, green fields. Hmm. And see the water flowing. And it really struck me so powerful. And something
0: so simple, right, Father? It's to dig a so well. Simple. I mean, it's so simple. the most...
3: And it's made all the difference. I mean, he's proud. He's out there digging. He's working. He sometimes stays the night uh, in a shed, you know, working in his farm. He's put his everything into it, but he's going to stay. And then another family we've helped actually in Lebanon... Uh, a young couple they have a goat farm 12 goats you can see the picture of the pictures of the goats jumping up and down on our, on our website They're they're keeping going again and the, the the wife the lady said that this was the difference between them staying or leaving and what a powerful thing this will keep christians in their country in lebanon and to me that's that's all that matters if we can say well we helped this one family—they didn't leave their country. They didn't become migrants. They didn't cause problems in the West by having to live on charity. They—we—we we gave them a little bit of money, or our donors, the kind donors, gave them money, and they have a future. And they have, as you said, such an important word: dignity. Dignity. Handouts in emergencies, of course, are needed. But dignity. We don't also publicize. I mean, obviously I'm publicizing on the uh, on the radio, et cetera, but in Iraq, in in Lebanon and soon once again in Syria, there are no, we don't have any symbols. We don't have, you know how so many charities have a big thing on the wall. that We gave this money and, uh, and they have billboards and nobody knows. In fact, only the people, only the people who help us. So their neighbors don't know. They just get some money and they get things going. And we're not about publicizing in, in the, those countries of what we're doing. It's about one, one family at a time.
0: Well, thank you, Father Benedict Keeley of Nazarene.org for this uh, very timely reminder of our responsibilities uh, first foremost in prayer for our Christian brothers and sisters who are persecuted around the world but especially on this 20th anniversary of the Iraq war beginning our Christian uh, brethren in the Middle East Um, How can people learn more about your work?
3: Well, as I say, you've done a very good job promoting (laughs) me, Gracie. Thank you. But yes, and I'm glad you spell it because I always joke that if you put the Z in, we're in trouble because that goes to to another charity that's got tons and tons of money. So yes, n a s -S 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 a r e a n N-A-S-A-R-E-A-N.org. And you can see, as I said, stories. You can make a donation. But please. Without being pious, we always do say pray first. You said it. Pray first. Pray regularly. We're very grateful for anything that is is offered, and we do pretty much compared compared with other charities, we have very small overheads. So um, most of it goes to to the people that need it, and and we're constantly. I mean, literally this week, I I was told of two more businesses which we might be able to help. So please, God, this is this is this is work that is helping people right on ground right on the ground.
0: Thank you, Father Ben.
3: Thank you, Gracie.
0: And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
4: This is Father Roger Landry. It's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us on Pentecost Sunday. I've just returned from leading a pilgrimage to the Holy Land on Ascension Thursday with Catholic students from Columbia and focus missionaries. I was in a very crowded upper room where we pondered how Jesus there gave us four sacraments. The Eucharist and Holy Orders on Holy Thursday, Confession on Easter, in confirmation on Pentecost. We spoke about what Jesus said in his valedictory right before ascending to the Father's right side. He enjoined the apostles not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father about which they had heard him speak. For in a few days, he said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The apostles and the other followers of Jesus returned to the upper room where they huddled around Mary and devoted themselves with one accord to prayer. She taught them how to get ready to receive the Holy Spirit. For it was she who was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit of Jesus' virginal conception and who continually lived as a spouse of the Holy Spirit, receiving and responding to His inspirations in an exemplary way. United with her, they prayed and waited, day after day, until on the tenth day, the Holy Spirit burst through the windows of the upper room like the noise of a strong driving wind, and descended upon each of them as tongues of fire." As we were in the upper room, we sang together the Veni Creator Spiritus, the Come Holy Spirit, the church's most famous and traditional prayer beseeching the outpouring of the third person of the Blessed Trinity. As others stopped to listen, we pondered the scene from this Sunday's Gospel, a prelude to Pentecost, when Jesus, on the night he rose from the dead, entered the closed doors of the upper room, breathed on the apostles and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This Pentecost, we will all be in the upper room of our parish churches, and Jesus will say to us, receive the Holy Spirit. But what does it mean to receive the Holy Spirit? We can ponder several things from Sacred Scripture. For example, on Holy Thursday, during the Last Supper, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would teach us everything and remind us of all that Jesus had told us, that he would testify to Jesus and help us testify, that he would convict the world with regard to sin, righteousness, and condemnation. To receive the Holy Spirit, therefore, means that we cooperate with the Holy Spirit's assistance to get to know Jesus and His teaching much better, to remember it, cheer it, live it, and thank God incessantly for it. To receive the Holy Spirit means to cooperate with Him in testifying to Jesus, that Jesus is always with us until the end of time, calling us to joy, life, and love. To receive the Holy Spirit means to fight against sin, to seek righteousness and holiness, to rejoice in the condemnation of the ruler of this world. Many, sadly, have not received the Holy Spirit. There's a famous scene in the Acts of the Apostles when St. Paul came to Ephesus and met some disciples. He asked, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you first became believers? They responded, We've never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. A recently deceased Pope Benedict XVI at World Youth Day in Australia 15 years ago said, The Holy Spirit has been in some ways the neglected person of the Blessed Trinity, and confessed that it was only as a young priest and professor teaching theology that he began to recognize the importance of the Holy Spirit and to know Him intimately. He added, it's not enough to know the Spirit. We must welcome Him as the guide of our soul, as the teacher of the interior life, who introduces us to the mystery of the Trinity, because He alone can open us up to faith and allow us to live it each day to the full. We don't have to be a card-carrying member of the charismatic renewal to allow the Holy Spirit to become that teacher and guide in our life. To receive the Holy Spirit means to allow ourselves to be led and taught by the Spirit. Even if we, like the future Pope Benedict, are beginning late in life, To receive the Holy Spirit means that the great unknown must become the great known. During the last supper, Jesus said something truly shocking about the Holy Spirit. I tell you the truth, he said, it's better for you that I go, for if I don't go, the Holy Spirit won't come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. Jesus basically declares that if we have a choice between him and the Holy Spirit, we should choose the latter. That's how important, he says, the Holy Spirit is. The great joy is that we don't have to choose between the second and third persons of the Trinity. It's crucial, however, for us to ponder the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life to examine whether we've received the Holy Spirit within at the depth at which He wants to go. For us to receive the Holy Spirit as He wants, we must long for Him like Mary and the Apostles and then allow Him as our guide and teacher to transform us. How does He wish to do that? We can focus on four principal ways. First is through our prayer. The Holy Spirit helps us to learn to pray, coming, as St. Paul says, to the aid of our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us. He wants to help us learn how to pray so that our life may become an existence-made prayer and enable us to live our whole life in union with God. St. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words, that he helps us to cry out, Abba, Father, and pray as beloved sons and daughters who know that the Father cares for us more than the lilies or the sparrows and will never give us a stone when we ask for bread. To receive the Holy Spirit well means that we're ready to cooperate in our prayer and allow the Holy Spirit to change the way we pray so that He, in a sense, can blow a strong driving wind within us the way a trumpeteer makes beautiful music. The second way the Holy Spirit wants to transform us as we receive Him is how we live our Christian life. Holy Spirit is sent to guide us. St. Paul tells us in his letters to the Galatians and Romans that there are two basic ways to live, to live according to the Spirit or according to the flesh. To live by the Spirit means that we're constantly seeking what God the Holy Spirit seeks. To live by the flesh means that we place our heart, treasure, money, material possessions in the things of this world, in fame, power, influence, and superficialities. To receive the Holy Spirit means that we want Him to help us to put to death in us whatever lives by the flesh, so that we might totally live by the Spirit's inspiration, His inbreathing, just like Mary and the Apostles did and the saints have ever since. The Holy Spirit wants to give us His gifts of reverence and awe so that we can better love God and others, knowledge and understanding so that we can better grasp our faith, live it and pass it on, of wisdom and prudence so that we can make better choices, and of courage so that we may do all of these things without fear. To receive the Holy Spirit, means to live by these gifts. The third way he wants to transform us is with regard to the missionary dimension of Christian life, toward boldly and confidently sharing our faith with others. The Holy Spirit wants to fill us with a fire to light the world ablaze with the gospel. He came down as tongues of flame upon the early church to symbolize that he wants us strengthened by him to use our tongues to proclaim the gospel with ardor, We see how the Holy Spirit helps simple men speak powerfully and effectively in front of vast crowds. He can do the same with us and wants to. In baptism and confirmation, we've all received the same Holy Spirit that the apostles received on Pentecost. To receive the Holy Spirit well means, just as the apostles left the upper room, that we're ready to burst through the doors of our homes and churches and use every means we have to announce Christ's kingdom. The last way the Holy Spirit wants to transform us is by making us aware of his gifts so that we might use them to transform the the church and renew the world. His first letter to the Corinthians, which we'll hear this Sunday, St. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit has given each of us a manifestation of the Spirit for the benefit of the whole. He's given each of us spiritual gifts so that we may carry out different forms of service— different workings necessary to make Christ's body, the church, strong. It wants to help us to recognize what our gifts are, and just as importantly, to use those gifts to build up our family, our parish, the whole church, and help it fulfill its mission in the world. The mission of the church is not just for ordained or consecrated specialists. To receive the Holy Spirit well is to recognize that we're called to be contributors rather than consumers, givers rather than takers co-responsible participants rather than seated spectators in the mission Christ has given. It's not by coincidence that the Holy Spirit came down upon the apostles in the upper room, where 53 days before Jesus celebrated the Last Supper. Pentecost is not a past reality for the church, but an ever-present one. Pope Benedict said, The Eucharist is a perpetual Pentecost. Since every time we enter Mass, we receive the Holy Spirit who unites us more deeply with Christ and transforms us into Him. It's during the Mass that in the Liturgy of the Word, the Holy Spirit seeks to lead us more deeply into the truth. During Mass, when we are helped to pray as we ought, to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, to recognize our God-given gifts and commit to use them for God's glory and other salvation. It's During the Mass, we have the Epiclesis in which we, together with Mary and the saints, pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the priests and the altar, so that through his hands, bread and wine might be totally changed into Jesus' body and blood. And then we prayerfully call down the Holy Spirit after the consecration to change men and women into one body, one spirit in Christ. And it's at the end of Mass that we're sent out inflamed by the Spirit to proclaim the gospel with passion. So we prepare to go to Mass this Pentecost. Let us prepare ourselves for the way the Lord will send out the Holy Spirit to renew us and through us seek to renew the face of the earth. Happy Pentecost.